morning, everybody. Welcome to Redemption Church. This morning we'll be uh, continuing in our uh, series in Acts. If you've been with us throughout the year, you know we've been kind of trekking through the book of Acts. And this morning we're hitting two chapters, chapter 13 and chapter 14. Uh, but I'm not going to read all two chapters to you. Instead, uh, if you would, just go ahead and uh, turn to Acts chapter 14. Acts chapter 14, verses 8 through 18. I'm going to read this for us. Acts chapter 14, verses 8 through 18. Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him, seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw that Paul had done... What Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news, that you should turn from these vain things to a living God, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. Would you pray with me? Our Father, we thank you again for just gathering your people together this morning to remember Jesus and to proclaim Jesus to one another. Lord, as we hear the gospel proclaimed through, uh, through music and through the, the singing of your of songs that are meant to worship you through, uh, as we hear the gospel through your scripture, as we hear the gospel through the preaching of your word and through all the things that we do together this morning. I pray that your Holy Spirit would be at work making known to us how great Jesus is and how great you are and how great your love is for us. Father, I pray that you would say what you would have said, that you would speak to each one of us as you would uh, have us hear it, and that your Holy Spirit would work in each one of us, ultimately so that we would worship you for your glory and our satisfaction and joy, and so that we would leave this place telling others about your greatness. In Jesus' name, amen. Isn't Facebook awesome? I like that as a first line. Isn't Facebook great? Uh, Like, it's really cool how creepy it is, how it always knows where you are and what you're doing and who you're with. Right? A couple of weeks ago, I had to go down to uh, Jacksonville, Florida for a little conference for the first half of the week. And uh, I got to Jacksonville, got out of the car, and immediately, of course, had to check my Facebook. So I pull my phone out, looking at I pull up the, the Facebook app, and there's a notification. Like, hey, Ben, we see you're in Jacksonville. Do you want to know all the places your friends have been? Right? Some of you have gotten that notification, too. I mean, it's, it's actually a pretty good notification, right? It's meant to, like, save me the the hassle 
of having to, to make my own post saying, hey, I'm going to be in Jacksonville. I'd like to check out some cool stuff. Anybody got any recommendations? I know some of you ask that anyways. I ask it too. And I'd still ask the question. As a matter of fact, later that same week, Claire and I and the kids all drove to Hilton Head for a little mini vacation. Uh, and when we got there, I called up Reggie uh, because they go to Hilton Head a lot. And I was like, hey, where, sh where should we eat? Where should we go? I know that they like it there. Do they go there a lot? They're there this weekend, as a matter of fact, on vacation. So I asked him for his recommendations. Do you do that? Like, do you ask people where you should go when you're about to go places? I know you do because I've seen it all over Facebook. I'm not downing you. I would do the, I'd do the same thing. But why do we do it, right? It's because we want to ask somebody who we can trust, somebody who we kind of believe they have pretty good taste or at least a taste similar to us and somebody who can, who's been there and who's experienced the place that they have deemed as good, that, we would, that they know we would like, and we want to go experience a good thing. We don't want to, like, roll the dice and end up like at, uh, I don't know what, uh, at some crummy place in Hilton Head. It's just a much more reliable system, right, than grabbing, like, the travel guide book out of the little stands at the gas station. It's a better system than reading some billboard or some sort of advertisement saying, it's the best coffee in the world, right? Not true. You can't believe people who are trying to sell you something, right? But you kind of believe people who you know and trust and who have experienced something that they know that you would like. See, last week, we saw Paul and Barnabas commissioned by the Holy Spirit at the beginning of chapter 13. We saw Paul and Barnabas commissioned by the Holy Spirit from the church at Antioch to go out with the good news of the gospel, with the good news of the person and work of Jesus to the nations, to go out to a people who do not know Jesus and reach them with the good news of Jesus. And this week, we're going to follow this missionary journey that they go on. It's all the way through chapters 13 and 14. We're going to follow the whole journey. It takes about two and a half, three years, and we're just covering it all in one morning. But last week, as they were being sent out, maybe you remember, I quoted John Piper. I'm going to quote it again this morning. John Piper says this. He says, worship is the goal and the fuel of missions. Like, missions exist because worship doesn't. And we just talked briefly about that. Missions exist because worship doesn't means that we go on mission to tell people who aren't worshiping Jesus that they need to worship Jesus, right? To turn from whatever they're worshiping and worship Jesus. See, everybody is worshiping something, right? We were made to worship. That's what we were created for. And so it's by design that everybody worships something. We were made to be worshipers. And it's pretty easy for us to see what other people are worshiping and how they're doing it wrong, isn't it? Like, it's pretty easy for us to see how other people obviously are worshiping something they shouldn't and it's taking them in a direction they shouldn't go in their life. And we wonder why they would sin this way, why they would go down this road when it's obviously making them miserable self-destruct, it's easy to notice in other people. But it's a little bit harder to notice our own uh, idolatry. It's a little harder for us to see how we're not worshiping God. It's a little easier for us to sweep our own sins under the rug, isn't it? See, I believe that the only truly effective tool for sharing the gospel with others, for sharing Jesus with others, is to have experienced the good news and experienced the gospel for ourselves. Who wants your recommendation for a restaurant that you've never been to and that you know nothing about? 
And who wants to listen to you tell them to worship someone that you're clearly not worshiping? It's, not a good, it's no good. You're just trying to sell something that's no good. But if you've experienced Jesus, and if you've experienced being held captive in worship to something else that was actually leading you to death, and then you've experienced Jesus come and deliver you from that and set your gaze on him and free you to live a life of worship to him that's life-giving and satisfying and full of joy for you, then you have something to tell people. You have something to give them, right? And that's why Piper says worship is both the goal and the fuel for missions because not only are we going to make worshipers, but it's out of worship, right, that we go. Because only when we experience the goodness of the greatness of our God can we really express his greatness to others? So this morning, my hope is that as we see Paul and Barnabas like run up against miserable, broken people on their missionary journey, as they keep running into people who are captive to idolatry throughout the whole journey, my hope is that we can also see some of our own idol worship exposed and hear the good news that Jesus is better. That Jesus is better than our idols. Than anything and everything else, Jesus is better. And only when we experience the greatness of God, and only when we experience that Jesus is better, can we really express that to someone else. So we're going to be covering a lot of ground today, chapters 13 and 14. We're not going to have time to like unpack every part of this story. But I want us to notice just a couple things that I think we might would miss if we weren't looking at the whole picture. Okay, so the first thing that I want us to notice is the idolatry of the Jews that Paul and Barnabas run into on their journey. The idolatry of the Jews. In almost every place that they go in this missionary journey, they start in the synagogues. They start in the place of worship for the Jewish people. And we know Paul's heart for his own people. Like if you've read some of his other letters in the New Testament, you know how much he has a burden for his own people. He, he says this in Romans 9.3. says, I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. He has a burden and he is grieved for the Jews. And the reason that Paul and Barnabas start with the Jews and the reason that they are so grieved for them is, number one, like this is their family. This is their people, right? And then secondly, through this people's entire History, God has been working to bring about salvation for them and for the whole world. And yet, through that very people, even though they're part of that very people, they seem to be missing it. They seem to be missing out on the good news of Jesus and missing out on the salvation they've been waiting for. And so they're burdened for them. And on this journey, on this missionary trip that they're on, we'll kind of see that the tension mounts as we go. Like the, the tension between their desire to proclaim the gospel to the Jews and the idolatry of the Jews just mounts as we go through the story. So the first place they go is Cyprus. I'm not going to read the whole thing to you, but basically what happens there is they go to the synagogue as they start out doing, going to the Jews. And while they're there, they preach the word, and then, uh, you know, some accept it, some hear it. Uh, and then the proconsul, who's a Gentile, kind of a powerful dude, uh, politically invites Paul and Barnabas to come and share the word with him. Now, the proconsul has a magician, and the magician doesn't like the idea of somebody else kind of getting in the way of 
what he's got going on with the proconsul. So he tries to stand in the way of it, tries to persuade him not to listen. So Paul's like, blind, you're blind. And he blinds the man. That's something. And then the proconsul believes. And Luke doesn't give us like a lot of commentary on this particular instance. But what we do know, I mean, just already idolatry is popping up. The magician's idolatry. He wants some sort of power. He wants something out of his relationship from the proconsul. And then the Jewish people. Like if you're a Jew and you are wanting your nation to rise up and to be the nation and to be the best and to be the greatest and to be the most powerful, then you want to wield those relationships, political powers. And so there's probably a little tension already because you probably don't really love the fact that he's now rubbing elbows with the likes of Paul. So after Cyprus, they go to uh, Antioch at Pisidia. And this is where John Mark, it says, he left and he went home. We don't really know why yet. We don't know what's going on there, but we know that this is where he left. Not a big deal today, but it'll be a big deal in a couple weeks. John Mark takes off. And in Antioch and Pisidia, Paul stands up in the synagogue again, going first to the Jews. And he unpacks just a really great sermon you should go through and read. And he unpacks how through the whole history of the Israelites, even before they were a nation, God has been working to save both them and the whole world. And he unpacks that, and then he unpacks that Jesus is the salvation that they had been waiting for. The person and work of Jesus is the gospel, the good news that salvation has come, the salvation they had always been looking forward to has come. And he delivers that message, and the people loved it. And in, verse, uh, in chapter 13, verses 43 through 44, it says this, Many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. And the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. And the people loved it. But then in verse 45, it says, But the Jews saw the crowds, and they were filled with jealousy. Now, Paul had warned in this sermon that he just gave to the Jews he warned them with a quote from the prophet Habakkuk uh, in the Old Testament. He said, saying this, Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that will not, you will not believe even if one tells you. And he warns them, he tells them to beware because they could become those scoffers, right? And the tensions are mounting and idols are beginning to be exposed Because the Jews become jealous over the crowds that are gathering around Paul and Barnabas and the the power they are already getting just in this short time instead of becoming overjoyed that salvation has come, which means that there's salvation for all people. And the tension's mounting. Before we go any further, just talk about what's an idol. Like we're not just talking about like a little carved image that you might set up on the mantle of fire. That could be an idol. That could be an idol, but also, I mean, an idol is just anything or anyone that we would worship over Jesus. Anything or anyone that we would be put in the place of God, right? And idols are whatever we put in that place of God, believing that it offers us some sort of joy or some sort of fulfillment or some sort of satisfaction or salvation. That's an idol. Anything we put in the place of God. They can never deliver on the promises of joy and satisfaction. None of them have possessed joy and life to give away. But that's what we give them. That's, what we, that's the promise we accept from them. 
And see, the Jews in Antioch and Pisidia couldn't hear the good news that Paul delivered, and they couldn't heed his warnings because they had some idols. They wanted something other than God. What did they want? They, we've seen it all through the New Testament. We've seen it in Matthew. We've seen it in Peter. We've talked a lot about what the Jews wanted. I mean, they wanted their nation to rise up. They wanted Israel to be great again. They wanted, uh, they, but they wanted to make it their own way, right? They wanted power and control, and they wanted uh, to be a great nation. They wanted all that and more, and they wanted it more than they wanted God, and they wanted it more than they wanted God's ways or God's salvation. So as the passage continues, when the Jews rose up against Paul and Barnabas and reviled them, they pretty much just say, hey, we came to you first, as we should have, but now we're going to go to the Gentiles. And they quote Isaiah 49.6 as like a reminder to these Jews what, Jesus is, what God has always been doing in their story and as a personal command for what they're going to do right now. It says this, I have made you a light for the Gentiles. I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And at hearing this, the Gentiles rejoice, it says, and the gospel spreads, and the Jews get angrier. Looking at the idolatry of the Jews, it's showing, right? Their idolatry is showing. They're not worshiping God. They're not God worshipers. They're worshiping something else, and they're looking to secure their own power and their own salvation rather than honoring God and honoring his ways. So Paul and Barnabas do something in verse 51 of chapter 13. As Jesus once told his disciples to do in such a situation, and it says they they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. They shook off the dust of their feet at the Jews and went to Iconium. And this is something that they probably did very literally, and when they did it, it would have said volumes. I remember a few years ago when I first went to Uganda on a mission trip, like we went out into the bush for a few days, we drove around, uh, and when I got to the first destination on the first day, this half of my body was orange from the dirt coming up off the roads. Then we went into some pretty questionable places, at least to me, made me pretty uncomfortable, just outhouses and things like that, not clean, not something I really enjoyed. Uh, And then we stopped at our driver's home on the way back, and he had like a little barn, uh, outside of his home in the front yard, and we walked by it, livestock, you know, they had some cows, some pigs, things of that nature, and the ground is like just covered in manure and filth, even where I'm walking. No different from a farm in the U.S. I just don't walk around on farms in the U.S., right? But it's filthy, and I got this thing in my head knowing that Customs is going to ask me the question, like, did you touch any livestock while you are over there? You right? And then it's not that big of a deal. I didn't want, I'm not afraid of customs, but I was like, why are they asking me that? Why are they asking me? There must be something really bad about the livestock in Uganda that I don't want to carry home, right? And so as I'm walking through it, I realize like, oh man, like I had a fairly new pair of shoes and I'm walking through this manure and I'm like, oh, I don't know what I'm picking up on these. They're not going to last. That's not going to make it home. So I get home and uh, take my shoes off before I ever go inside eventually throw them away before they ever go inside because we have three little kids. I think at the time I had two children, right? I couldn't risk contaminating them with some parasite from a cow in Uganda. 
So I took off my shoes and I threw them away. And this is kind of the same idea. Shaking off the dust had similar meaning. meaning. The practice would have been for the Jews, say leaving a, a pagan city or a place that's unclean, right, to shake off the dust as they went so they wouldn't carry that dirty stuff back into their clean area. It would have been a practice at the temple as you go in to shake the dust off of your shoes as you go into that area. Because why? Because it's a clean and holy place and it can't be mixed with the unclean. Think about the implications. Why could the holy places not be contaminated with the dust from the unclean places? Because the unclean places worshipped other gods. Because they had idols. And because they couldn't be contaminated in the holy place of the one true God with idolatry. See, this is all about idolatry. But what's crazy is that was the practice of the Jews. And so as Paul and Barnabas and their companions turn and leave this place, and they turn this practice around on the Jews, on their very own people, and they shake off the dust at the Jews while turning to the Gentiles, not only does it say and insinuate, like, hey, we're out of here, we're going to Gentiles, it also insinuates that they're distinguishing They have to distance themselves from the idols of these Jews so that it doesn't take the good news that's going to the Gentiles. Does that make sense? It's all about idolatry. So Paul and Barnabas go from here to Iconium, where they remain for a long time, making disciples, the scripture says. Eventually they run out of that place, so they go to Lystra. And as Craig Keener notes in his commentary on Acts, He says, this story is pregnant with irony. Like rejected by some of their fellow Jews, as we've just seen, the apostles are acclaimed as gods in the next town over. This is the part of the journey, this is part of the mission trip, the part of the story where I want us to notice a second thing. And we just just noticed the idolatry of the Jews. Now I want us to take a look at the idolatry of the Gentiles. I read this at the beginning, this this, uh, story, uh, chapter 14, verses 8 through 18, and Basically what happens, Paul and Barnabas go in, they start preaching. While he's preaching, uh, he sees a man who's been crippled from birth, who he sees has faith to be healed, and he commands him to stand up and be healed. And he is. And it's miraculous, and people are rejoicing, right? And then the people are like, hold up, you must be a god. Zeus and Hermes, they call him Zeus and Hermes, they think that's who it is, and so they uh, bring animals and and, and whatnot to to sacrifice to them who they believe are gods. These are the idols we understand more easily, right? Like none of you are going to worship Zeus and Hermes, most likely. We understand these. We can see them easily. That's obviously not something I'm going to worship and put in the place of God. That's the stuff of fantasy. How could anybody even think about worshiping them? But let's talk about why this is so significant and why this is the case, even to the people that they are going to. There's a story in Ovid's Metamorphosis about uh, Bossus and Philemon. Uh, basically, the story with Bossus and Philemon in Ovid's Metamorphosis, it happens in the same region, in the same place. And this is how the story goes. Zeus and Hermes come to town disguised as mortals, right? And as they come to town, they start knocking on all the doors in the town and in the region, looking for hospitality, looking for food, looking for drink. And from door to door, as they go, everybody turns them away. 
Nobody will take them in until they come to the house of Bossus and Philemon. Bossus and Philemon are an older married couple from humble means, really kind of impoverished, with not a lot to give. But the story goes that they opened the door, they let them in, they brought them in, they took what little food they had and they made the best meal they could with it. They took their wine, which was not a great vintage, and poured it for them and served it to them. And as they ate with them, they noticed that the food got better. It just wouldn't disappear. And the wine in the bowl just kept staying filled, and it tasted a lot better than it should have. And so Zeus and Hermes finally reveal who they are to Bossus and Philemon, and they say, hey, we've been going all through your region and your town, and everybody has turned us away, and so we are going to flood the whole place and kill everyone except for you two. You need to escape up the mountain now, get your stuff and go, so that you can be spared. So they spare them, and later on, after they flooded and annihilated this place and punished everybody who wasn't hospitable, they reward Bossus and Philemon not only with their life, but they ask them what they would want and, and as a reward. And they say, hey, we would love to be priests in your temple, and we'd like to die at the exact same time so that we never have to lose one another. So the story goes that that's what happened. The priests in the temple, one day they're sitting out by the columns in front of the temple, and leaves just kind of overtake them, and they turn into trees. Metamorphosis, right? And so those ruins of that temple are still there, and the trees in Ovid, the ruins of the temple are still there, and the trees are still there, and you can still see where this happens. That's the idea. See, if you're from that area, Maybe you've seen those trees or you've seen that old ruined wall. Maybe you haven't. Maybe your ancestors saw the trees and they've told you about the wall or or whatever it is. But this is what you grew up with. This is the story that you've been told as to why you live in sort of a marshland is because the gods once flooded it and killed everybody there. Then you might believe it too. You might live in fear of the gods too. To us, it might just seem like that's just some trees and an old wall from an old building. But to them, even if they hadn't seen it, if their ancestors said they saw it, if this is the story that they believe, they might worship the many gods of mythology. And so when something miraculous happens in your city, man, you turn it on, right? You get hospitable real fast. Because the last time, as far as you know, that the gods visited your city, they destroyed everybody except for the two who were very hospitable. And so something miraculous happens. It makes sense that they think of Zeus and Hermes. It makes sense that they turn on their hospitality and their throne. And it makes sense that they worship Paul and Barnabas as Zeus and Hermes. But let's see what Paul and, how Paul and Barnabas respond. It says in chapter 14, verses 14 through 17, When the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things. And in some translations, it says that you should turn from these worthless things to a living God. You should turn from these worthless things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the seas and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Paul and Barnabas 
deny deity and they point them to the one true God, understanding even the story that they're living out of. They point them to the one true God who claims far more power than Zeus or Hermes and who doesn't have to be manipulated in order to give good gifts, but gives good gifts to even those who do not know him and worship him. That's their claim. He even gives rain and fruitful seasons to those who don't know him. So here Paul and Barnabas have run into another kind of idolatry and into a people who worship something like quite different than God. And they declare that there's only one true God who's worthy of their worship. They declare that Jesus is better. Like to be sure, with the Gentiles, they've dealt with something different than what the Jews worship. But also, I just want us to see that it's actually pretty much the same thing. And it's probably similar to how we worship idols as well. What did the Gentiles worship, really? Like other God personas, right? But really, it's just about self-preservation, right? They were just manipulating what they thought were gods to try to get good gifts and try to avoid punishment for self-preservation. They only offered generous-looking hospitality, gener- generous-looking hospitality after they thought, after the miracles, after they believed that's who it was, all right? They weren't living their everyday life in worship of Zeus and Hermes. They weren't living out every day trying to make the name of Zeus and Hermes glorified in all the nations. They weren't really worshiping them. They were worshiping themselves. It was about their own self-preservation. And what did the Jews in the story earlier worship, really? Like, to some extent, they believe and they worship the one true God, right? But, but they worship themselves and their nationality more. Like, they would lie and cheat and steal and murder in this very story they try to murder. They would covet. They would break every one of the commandments that God has given them that are meant to honor and worship him in order to try to pull off their own salvation, to follow their own way, thinking that they have something better. And so the question is, like, what do you worship? What do I worship? What do we worship? And is it really any different from the Jews or from the Gentiles in this story? Everybody that Paul and Barnabas go to in this missionary journey are enslaved to idolatry. And their message is clear. Jesus is better. Their message is clear to them, and it's a clear message for us today. Jesus is better. Turn from these worthless things to he who has proven to be worth everything and more. Jesus is better. The story ends, or this visit ends with a near-death experience for Paul. uh, As the Jews from the cities they've already been to, like, follow him, and they come to this same place, and they start turning Gentiles against him, and they stone him to leave him for dead. As a matter of fact, they thought he was dead. And then the disciples gather around him, and Paul gets up, and they go right back into the city, and then they go right back to every place that they had just come from. And this is what it says in Acts chapter 14, verse 21 through 23. It says, They go back through these places, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations, We must enter the kingdom of God. And it seems crazy to me to like get stoned to the point where everybody thinks you're dead and then to get back up and go right back to the place where they just stoned you. 
and then to go back to all the places where all the people came from to stone him. Right? But Paul gets up, and he goes back. Because Paul gets it now. We must enter the kingdom of God through tribulation. Paul knows this well. He was present when Stephen was martyred just a few chapters ago, several years ago now in the story. He was present and part of it when Stephen was martyred, when Stephen himself was stoned and the gospel was scattered throughout Judea because of it. And now Paul has been stoned himself. Paul knows it well that for some reason, this preaching of the good news often comes with tribulation for the bearer of the good news. Why is that? It's because when we preach the good news, it exposes everybody's idols. The gospel exposes everybody's idols. It exposes our idols, the vain things that only lead us to manipulation and broken relationships, division, violence, murder, and death, and a pursuit of salvation, and preservation, and salvation, or whatever, joy and satisfaction. The gospel exposes everybody's captivity to worthless idols and holds the keys to freedom from their clutches. Tim Keller writes this. He says that the Bible says that human beings were made in God's image. That means, among other things, that we were created to worship and live for God's glory, not our own. We were created to worship and live for God's glory, not our own. And we were made to serve God and others. That means, paradoxically, that if we try to put our own happiness ahead of obedience to God, we violate our own nature and become ultimately miserable. So why the tribulations? Why the tribulations? It's because it's painful to come to the end of ourself. And the gospel takes us to the end of ourself. But it's a painful thing to come to the end of ourself. It's an offensive thing to be told that we're weak and that we're powerless and that we're actually miserable without Jesus. Because it makes us admit or confess that we're not enough and that the things we're worshiping are not enough and that we're wrong. And so when we say it plainly, offending power seekers and manipulators, it'll be good news for some who will hear it in turn, but it'll likely bring tribulation from others, even those in our very family, possibly. But as much as Paul experienced tribulation, he experienced the good news in his own life and in the lives of others. And his experience of the greatness of God, his experience of seeing that Jesus is better than anybody and everything else, causes him to be able to keep expressing the good news to others. The good news is that Jesus is better. He's better than whatever else you'd give your heart to, whatever else you'd worship. That's what I want us to hear today. Jesus is better. Jesus is better than whatever else you'd give your heart to, whatever else you'd worship. What idols do you worship? What idols do we worship in our culture? What idols do we worship at a church? We asked this question last week of, like, what marks your life? What marks your time, your money, your energy, your affections, your allegiances, your allegiances? Do you idolize having control? Do you have to be in control? Do you idolize knowledge and knowing? Maybe you idolize your reputation or approval of others, what other people think of you. Maybe you idolize a busy schedule or productivity. 
Maybe you idolize the group of people you run with and how that identifies you. You could identify, you could idolize your country. You could, you could idolize issues that you're all about and that you agree with. They could become your everything. They could be your search for satisfaction and joy and salvation. And it's not just bad things that we worship, right? Like we love to turn good things into God things. That's what we do. That's, the easy, that's, that's how the enemy works is to make good things turn into God things and whisper the lies in, us, in our ears that would help us to turn them that way. What have you done that with? Sex, friendships, marriage, your children, your work, food, entertainment, alcohol, whatever else. What are even good things that you've turned into God things and that you're held captive by and that you idolize? Here's the good news. It's the good news that Paul and Barnabas delivered to all that they encountered on their missionary journey. Jesus is better. Jesus is better than any of these worthless things, any of these worthless idols. And we've been invited to turn to him and worship him above all else. I'm going to close by reading this just a couple lines from this book. It's Gospel Fluency by Jeff Vanderstelt, and he has a chapter called Jesus is Better. No, he doesn't. It's called He's the Better. So I guess I didn't copy him. That's good. I'm just going to read this to us as we close. Jesus is better. Jesus is the better. He's the better Abraham, the better Noah, the better Adam, the better Moses. He's the better ark. He's the better manna the better water, and the better wine. He's the better temple, the better priest, the better sacrifice. He's the better spouse, the better parent, the better son, and the better boss. Don't settle for substitutes. Don't try to be a substitute. Jesus did better than anyone or anything. Jesus does better than anyone or anything, and Jesus will do better than anyone or anything. Jesus is the better everything. So don't look elsewhere and don't give one another anything or anyone else. Remind one another of the truth that Jesus is a gospel in a, I'm sorry, remind one another of the truth about Jesus in a gospel-fluent community. And be reminded yourself as you submit to others speaking into your life and experience that Jesus is better. Give one another Jesus because he's better. I think that's the good news that we need to hear from this. We all have idols. What are they? And hear the good news that Jesus is better. And tell one another how Jesus is better in your life. And tell one another how Jesus is better for one another. Experience how Jesus really is better. We're going to move into a time of response as we do each week. We're just going to do a few things. The band will come up and they'll lead us in some music in a time of worship, and that's just a time for us to stand and to worship our God together. It's a time to reflect about what we've put in his place, where we've been prone to wander, as the songs that we sang said. And a time to just remember Jesus Christ and worship him. It's also a time for us to give tithes and offerings, and there's a basket in the back where you can do that. Also, as a form of worship, a way we respond to what God has given us, and steward it the way he's asked us to do it, trusting him.
And then each week we also take communion. Where you can come down each one of these side aisles here and people will serve on this side and that. And you can take the bread and you dip it in the wine or the juice. And what we're doing when we take communion is remembering the body and the blood of Jesus. We remember Jesus. We, we remember him, that he is who he said he is, and that he's better because he came and he lived and he died and he was buried and he rose again and he's ascended. And he is our king and our salvation. We remember that and we proclaim that truth to one another in our actions and in our taking. So if you're a Christian, whether you're a member at Redemption Church or not, we invite you to come and take with us and to remember and to proclaim Jesus as king through communion. And if you're not a Christian, we ask that you not come. We don't want you to feel left out, but we want you to not say something you can't say. We want you to hear what we're saying in our action and take Jesus. The invitation is to you also to turn from these worthless things and turn to Jesus who's truly good, who's, all, who's truly got life and is your salvation. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you so much again for this morning. We thank you for your son, Jesus, our king. Thank you for your great love for us, expressed in his coming and in his living and dying and in his rising again and in your sending of the Holy Spirit to, to be with us. God, you're good. You love us. And you're even good to those who don't know you. You're even gracious to those who are far off from your people. Lord, I pray that you just made the gospel real to us this morning in such a way that we would, it would expose our idols. Like expose our idols for what they really are. Expose that they have nothing inside them, that they're not alive, that they're just full of death. There's nothing there for us. Expose it to our hearts, Lord, that we are chasing things that have nothing for us. And show us Jesus, who is better. And turn our eyes to him. And make us worshipers, Lord, of you. Lord, maybe we experience your greatness so that we can express your greatness to others. In Jesus' name, amen.